0: Well, I'm going to attempt. I got to thinking, it seems like every time I'm asked to preach, I attempt too much. And it takes me back to when I was uh, going to school with Dr. Kershey And uh, he said, one of the big problems people have if you're a preacher or, or you're a teacher and you're, you're not regularly teaching, and then somebody gives you the opportunity, is you try to teach everything you've learned over the last year. You know? and so <laughs> I'll try not to kill you all with too much. But I'm going to attempt to teach a brief summary. Emphasize the word brief of the book of Ecclesiastes. So uh, I don't really know how I ended up there. Honestly, I wish I could tell you. But over this last week, I've realized God's really had his hand in it. And I look forward to it. Um, it's an it's a interesting book to study and to read through. Um, I was talking to a guy yesterday. We were downtown. At the SEC game, preaching, hand out tracts on the street. And uh, one of the guys that was down there with us asked me what I was preaching on. I told him, he said, that was the first book I ever studied when I got saved. I was like, it's amazing what, people, what God leads people to. My first book I ever did a verse by verse study on was the book of Job. I don't know how I ended up there. It's like, how does God lead people to where you end up? But those are, uh, I guess, both similarly difficult books to understand I love going back and looking at my notes. They make no sense at all. I was (laughs) was like, what were you thinking reading through that? But, hey, it was studying God's Word, right? So we're going to go through and study it and see what we can learn. Um, The book itself, I want to treat this as kind of like you're now in Bible school. Think of it more than a Sunday sermon of, but this is more Bible school, because I like to sometimes... When I'm, when I'm going to church or wherever, let's learn about books of the Bible because uh, i never forget somebody teaching through the book of Philippians. And I remembered, if I ever want to learn about unity, that's where I'm going to go because there's a, that, that's a, one of the big things it teaches there. And so by studying Bible books as a whole and as a survey of the Bible and, and looking at this whole book, you can learn a little bit in, uh, about the book itself. And when you're, you're facing a situation that that book may pertain to, You'll remember that, and you'll go back. You may not know the verses or may not know the exact place, but you can say, oh, I remember studying a big uh, summary of that book, so I'm going to go there and find it. And So that's what I'm going to attempt to do today, give you a summary view of Ecclesiastes and maybe learn a few things along the way. It was written by Solomon, and that's where the the name of the book came from. It says Ecclesiastes was another word for preacher, or teacher is another way you can put it. And so, and the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, that's verse 1. That's where the words came from. This was one of the three books that Solomon wrote. And it was interesting if you look at those, I guess I kind of knew it, but I hadn't really thought about it. What are the some of the big topics of those books? Solomon, the wisest man in the world in the world to ever live, wrote Proverbs, it's a book about wisdom. And he wrote Song of Songs, a book about Really love and God's love for us and how amazing that is. And Ecclesiastes, a book of folly. So you think about those three books, you could take them, and you can learn pretty well almost everything you need to know about life. Wisdom, love, and mistakes, folly. You can learn a lot from other people's mistakes. Better to learn from theirs than ours, your own, right? Look at what somebody else is doing and then don't do that. And So this is really a, a big summary of the book is it's a book of, of Folly or things that he's learned through his time. Really, it, it's about his time when he really wasn't walking closely with God. Some people call it Solomon's falling away or Solomon's time away from God. But you, know, you, you can look at some of the things Solomon did, and they weren't really good. Um, but we can still learn from it. Another thing that I learned as I was studying it that I didn't know before was Ecclesiastes fell in, in the Tanakh there was separations of these books, uh, the scrolls, and they held certain groups of books. The Tanakh was the Hebrew Bible. And in this one, it was the third section, and it was grouped with five other books. The Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. They were all grouped together. And something that was kind of neat about that is those books are commonly read during all the different festivals that the, that the Jewish... People celebrate, and they're read at different times. The Song of Songs is read on the seventh day of Passover following the cedar meal. It's when you're you're, you're celebrating the Passover, and you come to that meal, and you sit down, and it's kind of a, uh, a meal like they would have celebrated before the Exodus. And you, Have anybody ever sat through a Jewish cedar meal? It's really an interesting thing to do. We had a, a Messianic Jewish Uh, fellow at our old church and he led us through that whole thing and there's something amazing about uh, that we miss I think as Gentiles getting saved and then if you don't really study Jewish culture we miss a lot of the intricacies of the festivals and the celebrations in some of the Old Testament there's a lot of things in there and not celebrating them not saying we have to but if you do or at least you study them you can really learn a lot about God and about who He is and what He's done, and and uh, you can learn about it, it. Almost becomes a part of your life, which is kind of what Christianity should be, shouldn't it? It's like it? It becomes so much a part of who you are. You the celebrations, the parties, and so they would they would read the Song of Songs during that one. Ruth was read during the Feast of Weeks, and and that's a celebration of when. Uh, Moses was given the Torah, also when he was given the, the law. Lamentations is read, which is, perfectly lines up to a celebration called the Ninth of Av. And I can't pronounce the real name of it. This is the translation of it. And what that celebration is, is, a, is remembering the tragedies that the Jewish people have went through. So Lamentations, what a great book to read as you're trying to remember the difficulties and the struggles in it, and that the, uh, they've been through. Ecclesiastes. This book was read whenever uh, during it was the Feast of Tabernacles, but that is a seven-day celebration outside of Jerusalem. Now it's actually they've extended to an eight-day, but because of that, you're always going to have a Sabbath fall somewhere in that week, and so whenever that Sabbath falls, they read Ecclesiastes to the congregation or in in, in their, their homes as a celebration of the Sabbath. They read this book during that time. And that it's a great time to just learn wisdom from God. And the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, we'll, we'll go over that in a second. I'll give you the last one. Esther, it was read during what's called Purim or the Festival of Lots when you're celebrating when the, the uh, Jewish people were delivered from the hand of Haman through Esther. Which, so Esther makes sense that they would read that story during that celebration. But the Feast of Tabernacles, when this book was, is read, is read during this Feast of Tabernacles, and there's two parts to it. There's the agricultural part of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, and then there's the religious part of it. And so you may have heard, have heard it called the Feast of Booths, or the, the um, there's another name for it, and it just escaped me. But Exodus 32, 22 is a verse that talks about uh, where God ordained that first part of it, the agricultural. It's a harvest festival. It's held in September or October. Some, you know Their festivals move around. And so one thing they're celebrating when they're celebrating this is God's provision throughout the year. They've planted, they've watered, they've done all they had to do, and now let's come together and celebrate the harvest that God has provided. All of our labor is, is, is really just our labor. If God doesn't bring the increase, it's still, no matter what we do, nothing is going to come of it. Does that make sense? And so, as we get into Ecclesiastes and look through this book, you're going to see how that really pertains to that celebration. It talks a lot about the vanity of labor, you know, the, the, the uh, meaninglessness of life apart from God. So, it's read during a celebration when they celebrate No matter what we do, all of our labor, all of our work, all of our efforts, it's really pointless if God isn't involved. We can sit down and enjoy this big, huge meal, but it's really going to be meaningless if God's not there, if God hasn't really provided for it, because what, what does tomorrow hold if God isn't real, if God isn't with us, right? And so then we also have the religious section of that, and that is in Leviticus, if you want to write these down and go look at them, 23... 42 to 43, and it's why they call it the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a celebration of how God provided for them while they were wandering in the wilderness. And so every year they, they celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles to remember, even when we were out in the, in the wilderness and wandering around, and just really just no home, no, no place to go. And yes, it was our own doing that put us there. God still provided and so, one of the ways they celebrate this celebration is, they'll build these little temporary shelters. And like any good person, some people really they, they start making them these big elaborate things. But really, originally, it's just a simple little shelter with a some type of veg, vegetation covering the top, you know, to make it it's temporary. It's not meant to be a big home. And they will go and they'll have their meals throughout this week in that booth. And they'll even some people will sleep in it. And it's to remember, you know. We had nothing. We, we didn't bring anything into this world. We don't have anything. All of our labor, it's all a provision of God. And that's part of that celebration. And they, and they read this during that time. The other thing that is a part of that is it's one of the three festivals where they call them the pilgrimage festivals, where you take a pilgrimage and you go to Jerusalem and you stay there. So imagine that they go there and set up all their booths in, in Jerusalem. And I was thinking about that. Okay, you're reading Ecclesiastes. During a festival, of celebrating God's provision, but you're also making a pilgrimage. Think about how hard that would be to, make, to leave everything behind, pack up, and go on a pilgrimage. That takes a lot of trust as well, right? And God, you have to say, I know me. I think about me. If I was to say, i got to go take this pilgrimage and go somewhere to, to worship God. I would think, the first thing going through my mind was, well, do I... All the work I'm going to leave behind and stuff that's not going to get done, or are we going to have provision when we get there? And it kind of forces you to to trust God, to walk out and say, okay, God, this don't make any sense. I'm going to have work that's not going to get done. I'm going to have stuff that's not going to get done. I'm going to get somewhere, and Walmart might be out of what I need, right? And I get there, and God's going to have to provide if I... I'm going to make it through this this pilgrimage that you've asked me to make. God's going to have to take care of me. God's going to have to provide for me, right? And so it kind of turns your heart and turns your focus back to God. All these festivals, all these things have a purpose, have a meaning. And so Ecclesiastes lines up with this one as taking our focus off of this world and the strivings of this world and putting it back on God where it belongs. And I, I wrote down there, it's just a reminder to turn our focus from striving to earthly gain, for earthly gain, to relying on God. You know, um, I, it's interesting when you're studying through a book. I know a lot of this is just kind of summary and leading up to it. Is you start to view the world through what you're learning. And one of the things we were doing yesterday, we were at the uh, the SEC football game. Handing out those tracks and, uh, and we were downtown. And... Uh, I made an, um, an interesting observation is people that are have good things in life seem to be well off, I guess is a way to put it. People that can afford to take the weekend off and travel to a football game and hang out are, are very, uh, what's the word, hostile to the word of God. They're very hostile to the things of God. They're very arrogant. They're very... Um, just rude, rude in general. Um, I could go down and walk around with all the crack addicts hanging down on, on and, uh, Woodruff Park and have no trouble, man. People sit down, hey, put your arm around you, talk to you, just friendly and as kind as could be for the most part. You know, you'll have a few nutcases that are like start screaming at you, but those guys are mentally have mental problems. For the most part, they're just kind of nice. We had I, people want, cut, threatening to punch me. People yelling at us, throwing stuff at us, just don't want the rudest people in the world. And they're all dressed up fancy, nice, because we're interfering with with their concept of my life is good. My life, I'm stepping in front of them and, and, and fl- flashing basically a big sign of you're missing, something's missing. Hello, something's missing, and they don't think anything's missing. In this book of Ecclesiastes, talks a lot about that there's, you're striving for all the things that this world has to offer and yet there's still something missing there, there's something that in the end when you sit down and you're in your ner- the nursing home on your chair and you've experienced all that this life has to offer apart from god you're going to be the most <clears throat> miserable person on the planet and I think that's what you see when you go down and you try to hand a gospel or You ask a person, hey, do you know where you're going when you stand before God? Do you know if you're going to heaven or not? And just the, the rudeness that comes out is is mind-boggling. And it, it, having studied through and been, re- been, in, been in this over the last week, it really stood out. The, the, the world, our world that we live in right now is full, the way way it came into my mind, we're full of King Solomon's. For the most part, people can have whatever they want, for the most part. We have an obesity problem in the United States. What does that mean? That means we have all the access we want to all the food we could ever need, right? And we have no need to really work hard and work that off, right? (laughs) So, just that little thing alone says we've got a addiction to prescription pills for antidepressants in this world. At times, that's neat. I get that. My family has a lot of that, and some people are just have problems, but what I'm saying is you've got everything you could ever want, and yet you're still depressed. I remember working in an office building one time in my life. Most of my jobs have been out. I worked in an office situation. It was a paralegal office when I was younger, and it was like... It was like the women didn't carry Skittles and M&M's. They carried antidepressants around. I mean, all these. It was amazing the number of. They're just like trading them. You know, it was like candy in this office building. And it blew my mind. All these people were very well off. Apparently had nice families and, and nice. Everything looked good on the outside. And they were all miserable. Just miserable. This world needs to hear that. You keep chasing after this American dream, and hear my, my caveat here, the book of Ecclesiastes says, you keep chasing after this American dream apart from God, try to do it without him, and you're going to end up miserable. That, that, that's, that's really the whole of this book. And a lot of times you you hear it taught is, Ecclesiastes says that you just need to, not chase after good things. Don't work hard. Don't, don't, it's all worthless, so why bother? No, see, that, that's not what it's talking about. It's saying apart from God. If you chase after all this stuff and you do it absent God, that's when the misery, that's when the, the, the pointlessness comes in. And I, I sum up this book in two chapters, before, or two verses before we go. So we're going to read both of those. Just to give a quick summary. It says this. Chapter 1, verse 2, and then the very last chapter, chapter 12, verse 13. Really, we could take these two verses, read them, and go home. And I always hate when a preacher says that, because my next thought is, well, then why don't we? (laughs) Because I've got a half an hour, no, because there's a lot of other good stuff in the middle of there, too, but... As a summary, we could learn a lot here. Read these two verses and go home and just think about them. The first one's this. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor, which he taketh under the sun? That's one bookend. And then there's a whole bunch of discussion in the middle. And in verse 13 of chapter 12, he says this. Let's hear the conclusion to the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Pretty simple, right? His thesis, when he starts off this book, is this. It's pointless. This life on this earth is pointless. Now we have... This book, you've got to put it in this perspective. A lot of these words in the first... Well, the majority of this book is from a man's perspective. Is it inspired by God? Absolutely. Every word in this book is inspired by God. But does that mean that the the perspective of it is, is the perspective that we need to have? Is this life meaningless? Ask yourselves, well then if this life is not meaningless, then is the Bible contradicting itself? No, this is an inspired man, inspired by God, to write words from a perspective that he had during a time when he wasn't walking well with God. And in, in what he's found in his pursuit of the good life, in his pursuit of, of things apart from God, is, yeah, it's, it's pointless. It's meaningless. And his conclusion is inspired by God. And this is good biblical truth, and that is fear God and keep his commandments. So we're going to figure out how he fills all that in. The One of the verses I thought of when, it, when I was reading through those was Matthew 6.33. That's, for me, a great verse that sums up the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's go over and just read that over here. Matthew 6.33. As soon as you get there, if you don't know what the verse, you'll, you'll be like, oh, yeah, I know that one. says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That was the first thing I thought of when I, when I was reading through this book and I got, got done was sitting here th- sitting down and just kind of thinking about it. I was saying, what is he really saying in all this? He's really saying what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Does he say, does he say Seek only. Just sit down in a cave, get rid of everything you own and everybody you know, and hide out and seek God only. He says, seek first. See, people people get we, we study these kind of things and we'll get into the things like this where we it tells us this life is futile, or seek first the kingdom of God and trust in God, and we end up like these. There, there, there was these uh, the, uh, monks and these people that practiced piety that ended up sitting on pillars in the middles of deserts you know, for years and, and thinking, I'm going to get away from it all. I'm just going to escape everything, and I'm just going to seek God. Does God tell us to do that? Does he say to just abandon all of life and just, no. He's got us here for a reason, doesn't he? So, to, so God, is, he, it's okay to pursue life while you're here but we do it pursuing god right we don't just walk off i was thinking as i was walking home uh, last night it was late at night i was kind of thinking through some of this stuff and i said you know I've, I've done this and i think some of us do this we we get this perspective where it says uh life is worthless and and everything is bad and all this sinful world, I just need to escape it and get away from it so I can just, me and God, and I can be holy and pure, and, 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 and we get off track. And I think one, one of the ways, here's a great example. I asked myself this question. I, was running home, I said, why do I homeschool? Do I homeschool because I think that's the best thing for my family because I want to be around my children, I want to teach my children, or do I do it just out of a fear of keeping them away from all the problems that are in, in the school system. There's a lot of sin there. There's a lot of depravity. And so I'm going to lock them down in, at home so they won't be influenced by all that bad sin. If that's my perspective, I, I've forgotten something. There's a lot of sin in my house as well. I live there. My wife lives there. And I've got seven little sinners that all live there. Right? Do... Do, do we send in our own homes? Of course we do. So I cannot lock them down. and I, I make this as an exaggeration to understand. Yes, well, I'm not going to go take them down to the local heroin house and let them hang out, right? Just because, hey, they're sitting there too. But at the same time, what is my reason? Is my reason really because I want to grow them and nurture them? Or am I just trying to hide out? Say, this world is futile, this world is bad, this world is terrible, so I'm just going to lock down and hide out and sit on a pole somewhere. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is live in this world, but not be of it, right? Take part in this world's activities. Take part in what's going on. Work, live, interact. But God is still number one as I'm doing all that. And that's some of the things I think we're going to learn as we go through here. And I, I put this, what is the mindset that I would like you to have as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes or as as you're thinking about the book of Ecclesiastes. And I said this. Take a deep breath. Relax. Take a break from your your striving, your your hard work, and realize that He is God. You are greatly loved by Him. And that is what will give meaning to And purpose to this crazy, messed up world that we live in. Abide in him. That was my summary for myself when I read through this thing. That's where I hope you get to as we go through it. And and as I wrote that and went back over it over and over again, I said, Oh, Pastor Lindsay, I hope you don't accuse me of trying to be Rick Warren up here. I'm not saying that you just... God has a great purpose for your life. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying... Take a deep breath, relax, and realize, okay, this world is messed up. And no matter how hard I strive to succeed, apart from Him and apart from recognizing that He is God, He's got it. He's got it under control. He loves me more than I can ever imagine. I can't even grasp how much He loves me. He's going to get me through this. He's going to make it meaningful because of him, not because of anything I do, right? Does that, does that make sense? So let's go through the book here. In chapter 1, verse 1 through 11, is the introduction of Ecclesiastes. I'm just going to read this one. I promise I won't try to read the entire book to you. We'll, we'll try to uh, just hit a couple verses per chapter and see what, what is a, kind of a highlight of each chapter as we go through? In the first part of this, he says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Um, remember, that vanity does not mean the vanity where you stand and look in the mirror and say, Oh, look how good I am. Uh, it's more of a think, think meaningless purpose. Uh, this is just worth. Meaning worthlessness. It's, uh, it's a waste of time. Think that when you're reading it. It's, it's, it does mean the same thing if I'm looking in the mirror going, oh, look at that, it's a waste of my time. <laughs> what profit hath a man of all his labor, which he taketh under the sun? One generation pass, passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about, under the north it whirleth about continually and the wind returneth again according to his circuits all the rivers run into the sea yet the sea is not full under the place from whence the rivers came thither they return again all things are full of labor man cannot utter it the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing the thing that hath been it is that which shall be and that which is done is that which shall be done There is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new. It hath been already of old time, which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. He starts off just kind of introducing it and saying, It's just pointless. I've lived this life. I looked around. There's nothing new. That, uh, we're going to look in the next chapter. Basically, I titled chapter two, the the life of hedonism. And, and, and he's, he's lived the best one there is. He's li- the most hedonistic life he could. And he, he said, in the end, what? Pointless. And I got to thinking that verse there. It says, there's nothing new under the sun. Think about all the inventions. Just in the form of pleasure, entertainment, and, and trying to make myself feel happy. I remember seeing a... Uh, I, don't know, I guess it wasn't a cartoon it was more like an old video of Walt Disney World back in like the 50s I think it was and they're introducing all the new gadgets they have for the home it was like on this turning wheel and it was had these like a pretend mom standing up there with the kitchen and all and it was showing how that by the year 1980 the woman will never have to work again you know and I'm thinking the more gadgets there are there's more stuff to fix and you would think according to their plan right and and all these inventions and the stuff they're making we should all just be sitting around on our chairs you know drinking lemonade just doing nothing right and it seems like I, i wasn't alive at that time but from what you hear and you talk it seems like we are more busy and more chaotic now than we ever were and more stressed and more frustrated i this is a definitive statement out of the bible there will never be anything invented that can give man peace apart from God. Nothing. It says there's nothing new under the sun. There will never be. They've tried. Up till Solomon's Day, they tried. People sought for pleasure. People disappear into the woods. I'm going to go find myself in the woods. And they, don't, they find a squirrel. You're not going to be out there. Right? You're, you're, no matter where you go, no matter what you invent, no matter what you do, Apart from God, there'll be zero fulfillment, zero pleasure, nothing new under the sun. And that was kind of his introduction here. And uh, I'm going to give you a quick side note. This is just has nothing to do with the direction of Ecclesiastes, but this is for home, people that are homeschooling or people that like to debate. Look at verse 6 and 7. Wonderful. This is written by Solomon. They did not have... Uh, Kurt Mellish or whoever the meteorologist is back then, right? They didn't have all these scientists. They didn't have Dan Cook with the radar stuff that could go figure out what's going on around the world, right? What is Solomon saying? He's saying he's talking about the weather patterns, how the world, the earth, the winds go around the world and circuit the the circuits of the winds. That, he could not get more than a few hundred feet above the ground if he climbed a hill, right? And yet he understood that the, the winds blew around the world in these patterns, in these circuits, in the weather patterns. And what about the water? Here he is describing exactly the pattern of the water cycle, of how it comes down, goes into the ocean, evaporates, and runs back to the mountains and falls down and runs down the rivers. God inspired this. And people say the Bible, it's unscientific. You can't trust it. It doesn't. This is years before they had meteorology and and satellites and things that could figure all this stuff out, and there it is right there in the Bible. For me, that was kind of an encouraging little side note. So there, you can ever use that if you want to teach your kids. Hey, look at that. Science and the Bible. It goes hand in hand. The other uh, thing I was thinking about is in verse 9 and 10. Thinking about that nothing will ever be created. I was thinking over the last week. Just think, just in the last what? I don't know, maybe it was six months, I don't know. Of these people, the famous people, that have had everything that you could ever imagine and they're dying of drug overdoses. and, and, and the, or their, the Lamar Odom is one I wrote down, the basketball player. I mean, the guy's found in a bad place he should not have been. OD, this guy, had, he, he's a great basketball player. He had all the talent and all the ability in the world, and here he is, ODing on drugs. You know, um, I was thinking of Whitney Houston and, and that Bobby Christina Brown. They, 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 t- there is nothing that they could have wanted they couldn't have went and got. If this life, if there was something that you could purchase or do in this life to find pleasure and, and fulfillment, they they could have easily gotten it. And then just just that last week that uh, Scott Weiland, the the singer for uh, an old band and still a singer, was on tour in his bus, OD'd on, I believe it was cocaine or something. Killed. He's like 48 years old. Everything you could ever want. And he just, if you look around, we know it's true. But yet we we keep getting drawn into these pursuits of happiness apart from God. Thinking, if I could, I was just having a conversation with a guy the other day. It's like I don't understand all these millionaires man they they, all, they always say if I could just get a little bit more out then I would be happy man if I could get a few hundred thousand I would know I'd be happy and as we're talking I looked at him and was like yeah right I say that now but then I would get the few hundred thousand and I would be like well, I just you know a couple hundred thousand more I'd be okay a couple hundred thousand more we know that's true right but yet what do we do we sit up at night fretting over how I can do just a little bit better, how I can make a little bit more, how I can pursue a little bit more. And we, we forget God's in control. Trust it. God, you're going to do this. You're going to take care of it. I just need to follow you, work, strive for you, seek you, and then you'll take care of the rest. The peace will come from, from you, right? But yet we know that's true, and how many times do we find ourselves ringing I'm not a woman, so I don't know. I think women go through the same thing. I know men do. I mean, we're just constantly worried. Am I providing enough? Am I taking care of enough? Am I going to? I know I'm... I told Kelly the other day, I says my body is not going to handle manual labor much longer. I've got to start working smarter because I can't work any harder. And you start thinking that when your bones start hurting. You're like, man, I can't, I can't just go out and swing a hammer anymore. What am I going to do now? But is God going to take care of us? Of course he is. Of course he is. So then he goes on down and to, uh, into chapter 2. I told you what we're going to talk about. In chapter 2, the title I gave to chapter 2 is The Pursuit of Hedonism. Verse 1, that's where I got it from. It says, I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Or it says, I will go try to have a great time, or gladness. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. Solomon, if you know about him, he reigned during a time of great peace, great prosperity. He had all, he wasn't out like his dad or other kings running around trying to put out fires or to fight battles. Solomon got to do what? Hang out, enjoy feasts, enjoy wealth, enjoy peace, pursue intellectual things. He got to pursue. Uh, any, anything of pleasure you could imagine. The, the verse in the Bible says, Solomon knew many strange women. He was just... I, I picture Solomon, I know he's a, a really wise man, but there's a part of me when I think of some of these things and descriptions of him, is like a very, very rich frat boy. You know, <laughs> he's just like running around, just I got no cares in the world, I'm in college, mom and dad's paying the bills, and I'm just going to go have fun. And that's pretty well what he was doing. And so he, he tries to pursue that. And in verse 10, just in case you think you ever get the thought, well, maybe he did, didn't seek out everything. Maybe there's something I can go find where I can find pleasure apart from God. In verse 10, he says this, just so you know. And whatsoever mine eyes desi- my eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not mine heart from any joy. For my my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. He tried everything. Remember, he's teaching through this book, saying. Starts off my thesis: it's all pointless, and then he goes on through these chapters to explain all the pursuits, all the things in life that he's went after that have shown pointlessness. He says, in chapter two, he goes through and he says, you know what? I tried pleasure. I went after everything I could to bring myself pleasure, and nothing didn't work. In chapter 3, he basically says this in chapter 3. We're born, we live, we die, not much we can do about it. That's kind of depressing, right? But, I mean, that's, that's how he put it. Look at verse... 19 and 20 kind of sums up his view. It says, "For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. yea, They have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence among above a beast, for all is vanity. All go unto one place. All are of the dust, and all turn to the dust again. Remember, this is a man that's just saying it from a man's perspective. I look around. What do I see? This is is understandable, right? If I don't have a focus on God, if I'm not, if I'm not filtering this world, this life through the Bible, through God, I look around. What's the difference between me and my dog? Really, we're both born. We both care about one another. I mean, he greets me. He cares more about me than I do, than I am sometimes. He's always greeting me. I smack him on the head, stop that. Two hours later, he's back. Hey, how you doing, right? I mean, he's more forgiving than I am. And what happens? We both eat. We both live. And in the end, we both are going to rot away. And 100 years from now, we're both going to be in the grave, back turned to dirt, right? So from a man's perspective, apart from God, we are born, we live, and we die. It's just it's pointless. Now we know the end of this book, right? If, we're just here, if we just stop here, if we just pick and choose scriptures throughout Ecclesiastes, we will get way off in our theology. We'll be like, see, right there, I told you, dogs and people, were all the same. They all go to the same place, so there's obviously dogs in heaven. You well, we can't really get that from there not theology here that we all go the same place this is a this is a despondent man who's living a lifestyle that's not lined up with god at that time and he's saying hey it's pointless this life is pointless i mean look we all die we all wander around we leave children behind and we move on we die and then they die leave children behind and move on it's pointless chapter four you summed up chapter 4, it says this, verse 1 to 3. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of such as were oppressed. And they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore, I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been. And who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun? He says, in this world, if you look at chapter 3, it was talking about this fatalistic mindset. And what happens when you have this fatalistic mindset? It doesn't matter. There, there, there's no God or not. God's not involved. We're just living, we're dying, we're just going about our day. What do we do as a result of that? We say, well, then, if there's no real reality outside of me, then who becomes the reality? Me. I determine my reality. How many times, I, I, there was a man I was talking to downtown one time told me that this is just all a figment of our imagination. It's just whatever I think is true. I said, you're telling me you step out in front of a bus and it runs you over and kills you, It's, not gonna, it's not, you're not going to be dead? He says, well, I might be dead in your eyes, but in my reality, I'll still be somewhere. Well, If, if you get rid of this, his argument makes absolute sense, doesn't it? because we live we die how do you who are you to tell him he's wrong and if that's the case if i'm creating my own reality if i'm the one that determines how this world works and i'm the authority then what's the result is you're going to be have people that are going to be oppressed people that are going to do the oppressing and the way i kind of viewed it was this life becomes this one big huge king of the hill and sometimes you're getting rolled down the side. You're getting beat up. Sometimes you're struggling. And every once in a while, there'll be a few few people make it to the top. I'm the king of the hill, right? And I've got you all beneath me, and they're kicking you in the face as you're trying to get up the hill. And then somebody will knock them off the top. And that's all life is it's just this big, giant game of king of the hill. And in the end, nobody wins. And you just look around, and that causes you to, to kind of start to feel like Solomon and say, this is pointless. We're all just struggling to get to the top and stand there for a minute and get knocked off. What's the point? And you end up feeling like verse 4. Read that one. It says this, Again, I considered all travail and every right work that is for, a, that is a man, that, ah, for this a man is envied of his neighbor, This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. You start feeling that way, and somebody does make it to the top. Somebody gets successful. Ted sells 5,000 gun racks over the next month. And he comes in, he's like, I sold 5,000 gun racks. I haven't slept in a couple weeks, but I'm doing right. And if our mindset is, it's all about me, and i got to get to the top, I start to envy him, like, man, I should be the one making all that money that Ted's making. Why is my business not doing well? And it says, what? You can't even enjoy one another's success. I remember in Haiti, it was a huge problem. Uh, So much so that I had a a man that worked for me. He saved up enough money to go buy a truck to run a little tap tap, like a taxi business. Everybody in town knew it was his truck. He flat out denied it. He said, no, 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 that doesn't doesn't belong to me. Uh, Somebody else is there just letting me drive it. And then eventually, he says, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna start paying him, I'm gonna try to try to earn that truck and, and maybe I can buy it off of him. And he just kept changing his story until about six, seven months later, he finally admitted, oh no, that, that's my truck. But it, it happened so slowly and over such a, a uh, uh, so many lies and such a time period that people did he, he didn't feel that envy. And I I I couldn't explain what was going on. The only reason I tell this story and can understand it was I finally asked somebody. It's like, everybody knows that's his truck. He's like, yeah, but if he were to come out and tell somebody that's his truck, the people would be so envious and jealous of him, they would cut the tires or they would do stuff to damage it because they didn't think he, you know, why, why is he able to, to raise himself up and succeed when we can't? I saw that happen with a lady. She came in from out of town, set up in the little village. And I say town. I mean, this was like one little road with a few houses. And she set up a little candy shop. And the candy shop made some money and she built a couple walls and she started making like a little general store. And they put a, a voodoo curse thing on her and, and told her to leave town. She left, never came back because she was succeeding. How dare you come into our little area and start succeeding. That's the, the nature of man. When, when we view life apart from God is, I deserve what you got. So Instead, even I, I can't even take the avenue of say Ted, man he did really well and I deserve that so I'm going to go work like Ted did and I'm going to do it no I've got to figure out a way to drag him down so I don't feel so bad about him being above me that's what happens in this world and another result of that is something a little bit further along here in chapter 4 verses 5-16 through 16 is what happens you hear this verse read a lot talking about marriage and a cord of three strands but in reality that's the good Look at how he starts with this. In verse 8, he says, There is one alone, there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet is, yet there is no end of all his labor. Neither is his eyes satisfied with riches, neither saith he, for whom do I labor, and bereave my soul of good. This is also vanity, yea, it is a sore travail. This section is under the mindset of this. One thing that this life results in is absolute loneliness. He you know, it says it's better that two to come together. It's better that a you know a cord of three strands is easier. But what he sees when he looks out on life is these people that are just alone. They're in it all on their own. I end up. I'm striving. I'm working. And I, I, I've I've knocked people down to get ahead. I've, 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 I've ignored my family to, to, to pursue these things in life. And what is the result? I'm all alone. How many old men do you think are sitting in nursing homes, nobody's visiting them? They've blown everybody in their life off to pursue this world, and they're just sitting there going, wow, I would love to do this all over again and go back and invest in people, make some friends. You know, I think there's a lot of people out there that, that have done that, and, and, and that's the result is you end up just all alone. Next few chapters, we're going to pick up speed a little bit, so I won't keep you a long time. On chapter five and six, it talks about the futility of religious and spiritual living. It goes down and it says, says you know all these things that you can do. It says, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they did not enter; <clears throat> they consider not that they do evil. And he goes through and he gives these these. Uh, things that you can do, because if you know in Romans, it talks about different types of centers, and there's one center, the religious center. We all know these people. I, I saw a guy yesterday, again, downtown. He's standing there talking to his friend, and I go up to talk to him. This happened multiple. I'm trying to think of which one to talk about. It happens all the time, but one of them, he's got his brown bag of whiskey, And he's, like, showing his friend, and they're, like, pouring bottles, and they can't hardly stand up to pour the bottles, you know. And they're just like, hey. And I'm trying to share the gospel with him. He's like, get away from here. I'm a Christian. I'm saved. I know what I'm doing. (laughs) Like, really? Okay. I'm having a hard time believing this, but if you say so. They know all the right words. That guy probably does go to church occasionally, you know. He probably does think that he knows God when he has a bad day, he probably prays and says, God, help me. When he has struggles, he probably talks to God and prays to God or calls up his Christian friend and says, Could you pray for me? You know, there's these people that they live this life of religious service and they don't know God. And in the end, what is that? I call, I call it the biggest waste of time on the planet. That was always my concept. I look at people that tell me that, and I'm like, No, you'd be better off to just say, Nope, there's no God. And go pursue all the joy you can in life. Because why? In the end, if there's no God, you die. You're no better than the dog. You might as well get as much joy as you can right now, right? The the people that baffle me in this world are not the drug addicts. The people that baffle me are the very successful people that don't believe in God. Why? Why struggle and sacrifice so hard if God isn't real? Man... Live it up. Paul said that, didn't he? He said, if the dead don't rise, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It, it, i, I got to believe the religious sinner has got to be the most miserable creature on the planet. They know something of God. They, they tend to think there's some things of God. They have these things they do to serve God, and yet they don't know him at all, and they aren't known by him. How miserable. And they have no power to really truly live for Him, and in those two chapters, He goes over that. He's talking about this futility. It's just futile to try to serve Him and not really know Him. And in chapter seven, and when you when you reading through that, it's just it shows this man who's who's given these thoughts of wisdom, and He says, "Remember, this is the wisest man in the world, but it's a a, a man's wisdom through a corrupt." mine he's not walking with God, and he's and he, look at verse seventeen. Here's an example. It's just a confused man's wisdom, is what when I look at chapter seven. Seventeen is one. Be not overmuch wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldst thou die before thy time? Sounds like a wise saying, right? So the wise sayings of Solomon it says, "Be not overmuch wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why should thou die before thy time? You know, why should you cut your life short? But what, what, is, what is the truth of the Bible? In both Psalms 139 and Job, are we taught that God has numbered our days? Does God know? when we're, Is God in control? So here he's saying, you know, don't go out and, and cut your life short, when in reality, I told people before, well, we've went to do evangelistic things or went places that seem to be dangerous, like the group, they're, they're going to Kenya. People are like, oh, there's some dangerous areas you're going through to get there. If God still has a purpose for you in your life, if he's still got something going on, my take on reading the Bible is I'm immortal until the day he's done with me. I'm not going to be an idiot, right? Because I may live but miss an, you know, lose an arm or something. I don't want to do that. But if God has said, I want you to go to Kenya. I want you to share the gospel. And they say, terrorists are beheading people in Kenya right now. Do you say, oh, well, I better not go because, uh, you know, God can't protect me. I know he told me to go, but I'm not going to go now. What do you do? Is God in control? Has he numbered your days? Can he protect you no matter what the situation, if you know that that's where you're supposed to be? course he can so i say right here that's just man's foolish wisdom i believe going through this chapter that's what you see there it's a lot of things that seem wise but it's it's not really filtered through the truth of god's word and so we got to be careful in reading those things in chapter eight he kind of hits this point in chapter eight where he says this okay maybe up till now you just don't believe me you're like okay I get that this life is futile, but I still want to succeed, and I don't really need God. And he says, well, okay, I, I've done a lot. I've been successful. I've done well. Chapter 8, really 9 all the way up through the end of middle of 12, he starts to give these, these instructions on you want to have a good, successful life, even apart from God. Here's what you do. Yeah, uh, give you, I'll just give you some examples to show you what he's talking about. In verse 4, it says, one thing you can do to ensure success. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, what doest thou? He says, listen, go find these people in power. Wherever these people in power are, wherever the king is, there's power there. Befriend those people. Get close to the people that are, that are wise. Verse 14 says this. After eight verse thirteen, there is a vanity which is done upon the earth, that there be just men unto whom, if happeneth, uh, uh, unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked, again there be a wicked man, to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous, and I said, this also is vanity. Work hard. Wait a second, I got the wrong verse there. I wrote down fourteen. Hmm. oh well, it says basically there's a verse in there and I wish I could find it, maybe it's chapter 9 nope maybe somebody else will find it while I'm telling you but it says this, it's talking about this work really hard so that you can enjoy the fruit of your labor so you can just take a break if you work really hard, in the end you'll be able to rest, but even that's futile I was thinking about when I read, read this, and I wish I could find it, it says this. There was this, this story about this man, and I found out where it was. I heard it in a movie one time. There was this old fisherman sitting on the dock, and, 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 and he's just enjoying. He'd been fishing that day. He got back, sold his stuff, and he was just sitting there watching you know, the sun go down, enjoying the afternoon, and this big, big, wealthy guy comes up, and he's walking down the dock, and he talks to the guy, and he says, you know, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm a fisherman, sold all my fish for the day, I'm just sitting here relaxing. I've made the money I need to pay my bills for the day, and I'm, I'm doing okay. And that fisherman says, I'll tell you what. He says, you see that big big yacht right over there? He goes, that's my yacht. He says, I'm a very wealthy businessman. I've worked hard. I'm I, I no business. He said, you've got some more hours in the day. What you need to do is go back out and fish again and come back in, and you've got time that you could sell some more fish. And then you do that for a few days and then keep doing it, keep doing it. You're going to get a little bit more money and be able to buy a bigger boat. And then you can still go out the same amount, but you'll be able to bring in more. And eventually, as you bring in more and you, you maintain this and work hard, you're going to be able to build it enough to where you can get another boat and hire another captain. And they'll be, you're, you're going to be doubling your fish. And you guys are going like crazy. Before long, you'll have some crews, and you can manage those crews. He said, in just, you know, 20, 30 years, you'll be able to get a big, huge boat like I got and just really succeed well and be able to just to, to have a house and all this. And the, that old fisherman looked at him and says, well, why would I want to do that? And he says, well, because you could just sit on the dock and enjoy the sunset like I am. And he kind of looked at him, you know, like, well, what do you think I'm doing right now? All that and will go work 20, 30 years to do exactly what I'm doing right now. It, it, in other words, it's not saying that you need to not work, but at the same time, have this right perspective. What is enough? to where you still enjoy God, but you don't get caught up in the pursuits to where you miss life, right? Go down to chapter nine verse four. Here's another one. You remember a second ago he said, "Those that are dead are better than those that are alive; those that have never been born." It shows you the confusion going on when you get to think in man's ways and, and you eliminate God. Verse four and six was it say, "For to him that is joined to all the living there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more of a reward. For the memory of them is forgotten." He says the exact opposite here. He says it's better to be alive because at least you have the memory of being alive and you have the hope and you you know you're going to be dead. But the dead have nothing. They go to the grave. If they're apart, remember, 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 we're focusing apart from God. There's no God when you die. That's it. So he completely flops over here and says, well, now the living are better than the dead. So he's it's a contradiction. In chapters 10, verse the end, really verse 8 and 12, he just talks about this. He says, you know, work hard, seek out wisdom, live right, be generous. In the end, it's all pointless. You can do all this stuff, but in the end, what does he say? In verse 8, he he comes all the way back in a big huge circle. In chapter 12, verse 8, and he says. You can follow all this advice. You can look at what I've told you. You can read. You can go work hard. You can earn money. You can pursue life. But in the end, verse 8, he says the same thing again. Here's my, here's my bookend on this. It says, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And you think, well, that was very depressing. Thank you a lot. Appreciate that. But then he brings in his conclusion. Now, and some people say, you know, if you go and read commentaries on Ecclesiastes, they say, did Solomon ever repent of the life he lived and the, the way he was going? There's no definite recorded in the Bible where it says, Solomon says, I repent, I was wrong, God forgive me. But here, it sure seems to be the heart of a repentant man because he, he says, okay, here's what I've done. Here's this life. Here's what happens when you're apart from God. If you look at this lifestyle and you take God out of the picture, It's it's meaningless. And he says this, And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. Even in this insane world we live in, in this craziness, you start looking around and start just turn on the, the TV news for about 20 minutes and you'll be depressed. What does this world need? It does need God. It needs the truth. And he says, even in his craziness, he just finished the saying, it's all vanity. But the preacher was wise, and he still taught truth. This world, needs, this world needs to hear this, the truth, the word of God. It doesn't need to hear our arguments. It doesn't need to hear our rhetoric. It doesn't need to hear that, well, it's okay. I love you anyways. It needs to hear the truth you know that that's what the world needs to hear. You know, we're going to lo- for the longest time we argued as a Christian culture that well, gay marriage is wrong just because it isn't right. Or gay marriage is wrong because it's not natural. Where is that got us? Nowhere. No, what they need to hear in love is gay marriage is wrong because God says it's an abomination. That's truth in this insane world this craziness, they need truth. Right? The only way you're made right with God is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's truth. They don't need to hear, well, just say a prayer, or just try really hard. Or if you go to church and if you really love God, it'll be okay. Or just accept him into your heart. They don't need that. This world needs truth. And truth is sometimes hard to give, isn't it? Because it can really rub somebody the wrong way. But truth is what they need. And it says, because he was a wise man, he continued to teach wisdom. Verse 11, what do those wise wise words do? It says, the words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the master of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. When we give truth, when we teach wisdom, when we are in our workplace, when we are at home, wherever we are, when we study God's word and we in, and take truth in, and we give truth out, what does it do? Even in the chaos of the world, it, a, a goat is like a cattle prod, and it keeps you moving down that straight path that you need to be walking on, right? Does anybody ever wander? Yeah? A lot? Yeah, there's, I hate to say I mean, yeah. But every time you open his word and study it and read it, what's it do? It's like, nope, this way. Oh, you're getting off. You know, it keeps you. Psalm 119, 105. Great verse. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to guide my path. Right? It's a wonderful, wonderful verse. You open this up. It's a cattle prod. It keeps you moving. It also, not just in the right direction, it keeps you moving. Anybody ever feel like just quitting? This life, is futile. it can seem futile. It can seem difficult. You know, one more disappointment you're like you're like come on god you know i'm done just take me home now can i just come be with you this is just rough this is hard and what is his word do you You open it up and he says he pushes you along he takes the cattle prod and says no come on get up get moving and you keep following keep walking his word is wonderful verse 12 and further by these my son be admonished of making many books, there's no end. Of much study is a weariness of flesh. I read that and I thought, what in the world is he talking about? And I kind of got to thinking. How many times have you talked to somebody, shared the gospel, or told them, says, you know, this is true? And they're like, yeah, I know, I'm, I'm really seeking truth. I'm, I'm looking for it. I'm, I'm seeking out truth. You hear that all the time. You know what my response to them is? It's like, that's awesome. Please, please, please be a seeker of truth. But also... Be willing and honest to admit it when you find it. Because just saying you're seeking truth or just going out and looking everywhere for truth doesn't solve it. There's, it says there's no end of these books. People writing books after books after books. There's millions of holy books and commentaries. There's all this stuff. But when you find the truth, be willing to admit it. Go seek truth. But then when you find it, admit it. And then he brings down to his very final conclusion. After all this talk, he says, "Let us hear the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man." After all that, he says, "Fear God, keep his commandments." Apart from relationship with Jesus Christ, this You're going to get up and go to work Monday morning. Hopefully. And think about this. Getting out of bed, putting on your clothes, getting dressed, and going to work is completely pointless apart from the relationship with Christ. Even that, something as simple as going to work. And not only for you, you're now working with people. You're going to the grocery store and meeting people that are going through life and you would to ask them, why are you doing what you're doing? They can't give you an answer, really. They'll maybe, well, I, gotta, I want a nice car. I want a nice house. Or I've got a family that needs to eat. or There's all this stuff. And if in reality, apart from personally knowing and walking with Christ, all those answers are pointless. People need to hear that. People need to understand. They, they're looking for that. They're like, well, what am I doing this for? Why are there people committing suicide? Why are there people on eating antidepressants like candy because this life is pointless. They get up and they go do it again. Why are there so many country songs about 5 o'clock Friday? Because if you get drunk all weekend, you don't have to worry about all your worries and your problems. You can at least forget it for a little while, right? Then you sober up and you're still there Monday, right? People will say, why, does, why do people, me and Kelly were talking about this the other day. It's like, I don't understand, I think it was hurt. Well, I don't understand why people get drug addicts and get drunk all the time. I'm like, I do, I was one. Because for a short period of time, you completely forget about all your troubles. Right? Oh, I don't have to worry about it. I'm stoned, this is great. But they're, they're right there when you come back. What are those people that are addicted to drugs and alcohol or work? Or just depressed. What do those people need to hear? This life you're living is completely pointless. Yes. Apart from understanding that you have a Savior. And he created you. He, he forms you. He's got you here. And he's got a purpose for you. And I don't mean the purpose-driven life purpose. He's got some reason that you're here. Does that make sense? If God is not real, if the dead don't rise in Christ, we aren't, we're just like the animals. We might, we might as well just behave like them. But I wrote on there, praise the Lord. He is real. He does exist. He did create us. And he, he not only gives meaning and reason to our life, but he provides us with a hope of eternal life with him. And that, for me, is the sum of it all. The world needs to hear this message. I'm telling you, I, I wanted to stop and start preaching and walking home. It was, I don't know what time it was. It was like 8 or 9 at night last night. And I'm walking down Martin Luther King, you know, just from the train station heading home. I mean, there's guys trying to sell me weed. They're like, weed, weed. weed. i tell a gospel track, you know. It, it, the, the world's a disaster. There's prostitutes walking around and then, and then just... Three blocks down, there's a football game going on with people that are just miserable. It's just as bad as the guy sitting on the street corner shaking the cup. They need to hear this message. We have a message, and that is God is real. And if you will humble yourself and call on him, he'll not only give you some fulfillment, some peace, some joy that can be found no other place in this life, it'll give you hope of eternal life, which is way better than anything you could ever get here. So in the end, his conclusion is fear God and keep his commandments. And you'll find true peace. You'll find joy. That's for us. But for me, the real challenge is this. There is a world that is dying to hear this message. And we have it. We have the answer to that big question. Where did I come from? Why am I here and where am I going? What in the world am I doing here in this world? What's going on? What's it all about? We have the answer. There's millions of Solomons out there in this world. And we have the answer they need to hear. If you humble yourself and cry out to God, He'll not only give you hope here, but He'll give you hope for eternity. That's kind of exciting, don't you think? Anybody want to go downtown and start preaching? I mean, that sounds like a fun thing to do. Pretty simple message. That's the good news. So let's pray. Father, thank you for a book in the Bible that shows us, we all know it to be true, but it shows us the mentality that uh, comes about when we think, focused on this world. God, help us to see this world through your eyes, to see it the way you do. Help us not to get caught up in the pursuits of everything under the sun, as, the, as uh, Solomon wrote, but to pursue you, to see you, and let you guide us into the pursuits that you would have us to do here on this earth. And Lord, help us to carry this message. <clears throat> help us to realize the reason people are behaving the way they are is they're absolutely miserable they realize that just life is coming to an end and they have no hope. I pray, Lord, you'll help us to be willing to stand up and to be bold and to share this message with all those people that need to hear it, God. Help us to start in our own home and then take it out everywhere. Praise you and thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.